Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Let's talk about drought conditions and the impact on BC farmers. Now, as British Columbia gets drier and drier uh, during the summer, many farmers across our province are concerned about the impact on their crops and livestock. With dwindling hay crops and not enough feed to get their livestock through the fall or winter months, many ranchers uh, have been forced to sell their cattle off at auction. Recently, the province did announce funding funding under a new program called Access to Feed Program, which is being delivered with the BC Cattlemen's Association. Now, through the program, uh, and working with the Cattlemen's Association, it'll match sellers of hay and feed domestically across Canada and internationally with farmers and producers. Now, the problem, of course, is a significant one. Add to that another issue we don't talk enough about, and that's access to water for our farmers during the summer months. Four of the worst uh, wildfire seasons in our province's history have come in the last six years. Uh, joining me now to talk a little about drought conditions and the lack of water for farmers is Ian Payton. He's the Shadow Minister for Agriculture and he's a food critic with the BC United Party. Ian, thank you for joining us today. Thanks. Good afternoon, Jazz. Uh, it is a big issue. Let's talk a little bit about drought conditions first and foremost. Uh, you know, you've had a you're, you're a farmer, long history as a farmer as well. You talk to the farming communities throughout here in Metro Vancouver, but across the province. Uh, what's the latest in regards to just the issue of drought conditions, access to feed? What are you hearing from them? You know, it's interesting to start, Jazz, even in the Fraser Valley, you know, growing up on our farm in the 60s and the 70s, you know, even in the Fraser Valley Delta, nobody really had much in the way of irrigation equipment back then. It just seemed we always had a kind of sporadic rainfalls, and in between that, you'd make your hay or whatever you had to do. And now, uh, nowadays in Delta, anywhere in the Fraser Valley, if you don't have a full irrigation system on your farm, you're pretty much out of business. So that's how times have changed, certainly, Jazz. Uh, in the last 30 or 40 years with climate change and these long, hot, dry summers that we're getting, not only in the Fraser Valley, but certainly all over the northern parts of BC, where I just returned from. Mm-hmm. Uh, in regards to the drought conditions and this new program, uh, the Access to Feed program, let's start with that. Uh, is that going to be enough in regards to helping farmers? Yeah, well, Jazz, I, I've been chatting uh, nonstop for the last three or four days uh, up in Fort St. John, Dawson Creek, Chetwin, with farmers and ranchers about this very issue. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> access to feed, it's a, it's a wonderful idea that the government has kind of tried to set up with the BC Cattlemen's Association, but there was only $150,000 put into this program for BC Cattlemen's to go out and try and search or match up ranchers with um, hay, hay dealers. Well, Alberta and Saskatchewan are our two closest partners. They're suffering from drought situations as well. So there's really no feed to access there. So they're looking down in Washington, eastern Washington State, perhaps Montana, perhaps Oregon. Well, you know, a rancher in Fort St. John may need a thousand bales to get through the winter. You can only, uh, you know, travel about 40 round bales on a truck, um, you know, and the route's probably 1,500 kilometers. It's just doesn't make any sense, you know, transportation-wise to try and bring a feed this far away to parts of, uh, you know, Dawson Creek, Fort St. John, uh, Vanderhoof, places like that. 
So what, what, what should be done in your mind? Well, I think, you know, what we need to do in future is look at the fact that summer after summer, we seem to be going through these exact same drought situations. So we need to start stockpiling uh, feed or hay, uh, you know, in, in barns or wherever it takes to have some of this feed on hand for our own uh, farmers and ranchers here in British Columbia uh, in, in future and have some contracts uh, done up with some, you know, hay farmers in Alberta, Saskatchewan, or down in Washington State, so they're not chasing after this. And we know it's going to happen. It's going to happen time and time again in future years, so we need to be more prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue of water, you know, you always think of Metro Vancouver as a rainforest. Uh, you've talked a little bit about irrigation systems. How common is that outside of outside of uh, the Lower Mainland in regards to having water capturing technology, all of those sorts of things. How, uh, you know, how pronounced is it in the rest of this province? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Your listeners will recall traveling on the the, uh, Fraser Canyon or along the, uh, you know, the Thompson River uh, up around Kamloops, place like that. You'll see these big, what they're called is uh, pivot irrigation systems. They've got readily uh, usable water from the Thompson River, different creeks and rivers that are you know, easily to get at for the local farms and ranchers to irrigate their crops. Once you get up into places like the Chilcotin, the Caribou, uh, Fort St. John, the Peace area, they just don't have irrigation sources. Uh, they just don't have the access to to water. So that's why right now, having just come back from there, these poor folks up there are absolutely out of feed. They don't have enough hay to get uh, through the fall and winter. A lot of their grass pasture has been burnt off by fires. Um, the auction yard, which I came from in Vanderhoof and Dawson Creek, are seeing, you know, 10 times the number of cattle going through right now because farmers and ranchers are going, I've got to sell off part of my herd. I don't have enough feed to get them through. Wow. Um, you know, water capturing technology, it's used in other parts of the world uh, who have challenges with water. Uh, it's not something we've traditionally had to implement a system province-wide, and each farmer is going to be different and, and their needs are going to be different. Uh, but it seems to me they would need lots of help and it would be incredibly complex uh, and expensive to do. Uh, and But it, one would argue it's the only entity that can really help to do this is the provincial government. Um, is this something we need to be looking at just like any other capital cost now, whether it be building a hospital or building highways that we need to start looking at water capturing technology for farmers and helping them out? Absolutely, Jazz. The, um, the NDP government uh, at the end of the fiscal year threw an extra $111 million into the agricultural budget, which has disappeared. None of this is being used whatsoever for the water issues, the drought issues, the fire issues that we're facing right now. Uh, they've gone on to insequential issues as far as I'm concerned. We need to use that kind of money to get farmers set up uh, to improve their infrastructure. Ranchers, d- they, they build what's called dugouts, and they store water from the winter months where there's lots of rain, lots of snow. Um, they build dams on their ranches. We need money for these folks to be able to build more of these dams and dugouts and huge retention ponds to make use of, even in the Fraser Valley, look how much rain we get here in the mm-hmm. wintertime. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's make use of massive retention ponds, dams, and dugouts 
so that we can capture this water in our winter months. BC is known as one of the wettest provinces in Canada in the winter, so let's start capturing some of this winter snow and 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 rain and have it stored so we've got some of it to use in our, our hot summer months. Is it too complex, though, and how would you implement a program like that? Is that a question of farmers having to build it and, and, and applying for grants? It seems like an incredibly complex yet and capital-intensive uh, project. How would you like to see something like that introduced or implemented? Well, you know, it's not that difficult, Jazz. Even in our area down in Tuas and Boundary Bay, we've converted all this land down there into agricultural land. And what's happened is if you can see a small stream coming down off of Point Roberts, what we've done, we've built a massive retention uh, pond uh, there to capture this water, not only the rain, but a little bit of water from the creek. So now this is the first time in years that we've seen farmers irrigating down in Boundary Bay, part of Tawasson. And it's it's just a, a matter of building these massive retention ponds. With A lot of them have a rubber liner on them, and a lot of dairy farms and uh, ranches could, could do this to have uh, water close by. Not only, Jazz, just for irrigation, mm-hmm. but when you've got a um, 1,000 head of cattle on a ranch... They all have to drink every day during these hot months. So you got to make sure you've got, for animal welfare reasons, you got to make sure you've got lots of good water handy for your animals to drink all through the summer. Did you ever think you'd be talking about water retention and saving water in the middle of a rainforest? <laughs> no kidding. I'll tell you, when I was a young farmer, yeah. uh, he, even here in Delta, it was like, wow, you had to be on your toes to be able because, you know, hay's got to be bone dry in the sun to make it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you didn't want to get caught in between showers in the summer. So that's why back in the 60s and 70s, we never really thought about irrigation or whether, you know, we thought, you know, too much rain was a pain in the butt. And now everyone's, you know, praying for rain throughout this province uh, in these hot, scorching summer months. Yeah, it is. It, I, I remember when I used to live in India, that was one of the things that during the monsoons, you know, you get over 100, 200 hour, hours of rain, and but you, they try to capture as much as they can because they'll need it in the summer months or in the early summer months. And and uh, and here we are in a rainforest, in many ways, having that same conversation now that, uh, that that's actually real and dire for, for a lot of farmers, that's for sure. Ian, thank you so much for your time. Jazz, yeah, thanks for having me and uh, enjoy this wonderful uh, BC day here in, uh, here in the lower mainland. Well, after five weeks, the city of Vancouver says it's ending its pilot project that turned a portion of U Street in Kitsilano into a pedestrian-friendly zone that actually ended today. Uh, the, the pilot saw the stretch between Cornwall and First Avenue be blocked to vehicle traffic during the day and with the road only accessible to cars for deliveries and loading during certain times. Of course, it raised some concerns about traffic issues and parking as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this car-free pilot project is Mike Klassen, ABC Vancouver City. Councillor Mike, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Jazz. Now, the city runs many pilot projects. Um, uh, it's uh, just an integral part of city life. Walk me through a little bit in regards to this one, uh, where you've had a car-free uh, area on U Street. Um, what, what sense do you have so far whether it's been successful or not? Well, thanks, Jazz. So the U Street pilot uh, was in, uh, begun in, on June 30th this year. And it's two blocks of U Street between First and Cornwall. So we know uh, there was a big discussion in the spring about uh, traffic on Cornwall and trying to do some measures to try and slow things down. And there it does get very busy, especially with Kitts Beach being beside it. And uh, the U Street pilot uh, 
it, it got a lot of reaction on online. A lot of people who uh, were very vocal about it. Um, some who uh, found it uh, a good place to uh, to kind of activate the street, and others thought that it, it fell short. And so uh, the pilot uh, is concluding today, August seventh, and uh, and I think uh, we're going to review what uh, what we did there and see if there's ways that we can we can be more effective with pilots like this. And what was the reasoning to try the pilot in that neighborhood? Uh, we heard from uh, businesses in the area, um, and there was uh, a desire to to try and create uh, more of a street environment. I mean, I know from going to the King King's Head Pub back in the day, and that it's uh, it's an area that has some restaurants and uh, places where people can uh, have a beer, glass of wine, and it sort of really fits nicely with the the neighborhood vibe, including the uh, the beach area. Uh, but um, the idea that we would sort of semi-close it off, which is to say, people uh, vehicles could still go through and access it, but generally it was it had areas that were blocked off for some sort of pedestrian and some some seating. Uh, but I think uh, it was it's an area that because of the slope, I always thought it might have been a better uh, place to do movie nights or something like that because of the grade of the street. Uh, but I think uh, these are the kinds of projects that. You know, we're going to try things out, and, and if it doesn't work, we're going to uh, take a pause, take a look at it, see how we can do it better. And I'm going to assume uh, councillors and city staff will have talked to businesses as well. There were complaints in the early stages of, um, you know, uh, customers not being able to get to a flower shop and other fl- a few custom- uh, businesses saying that, you know, business is down 30 or 40 percent. So and that's going to be part, mm-hmm. of the, part of the conversation. Yeah, of course, and, and that's not the goal here. We're always trying to find ways to, to strengthen and bolster our small businesses, our retail outlets across the city. Um, when we hear stuff like that, I mean, it's only been going now for uh, slightly uh, over a month. So clearly we decided to kind of take a look at that and put the brakes on it and, and see how we can uh, maybe revisit it or do it better. Why do cities like this, these car-free uh, locations, uh, give me a sense of what they're supposed to accomplish? In this case, it's a couple of blocks, two city blocks. Mm-hmm. But what are they supposed to accomplish in your mind? You know, I, th- I think it's a great question. It's very much, um, I think, it's something that we're, we're seeing a lot more of in a lot more uh, cities. And it, it's partly because of what uh, communities have been asking for. We've got some very vocal ac- advocates who talk about taking, taking back some of that space. Uh, there's been some fantastic studies on the fact that we we build too much uh, parking related to businesses in, in some areas, and it would be nice to have some of that back for other other needs. Um, but I think as we start to densify, especially um, uh, the Broadway uh, qu- uh, corridor, which is going to be very interesting, you know, that's going to be a generational project. So it's going to take us a couple of decades to really start to see the, the real um, big changes there. But when we do, we're going to have to find places to put public space. And... Um, it may be on a street, it may be on a, a corner, but I think that's the kind of uh, sort of public activation that I, I think we're going to see a lot more of, and it's pretty creative, and generally we're really good at it here in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you actually raise a very good point. We, there's a significant conversation around density, what's it looks like, look, what's it look like, you know, uh, do single-family homes fit into that? But what is parks and what are public spaces all part of that conversation as well? And at the end of the day... The car is not going anywhere, but the part of the conversation really is, do we need cars everywhere? Um, 
Well, hopefully we can find ways of uh, reducing the number of vehicles. I mean, I think that uh, year over year we're seeing more cars in a road. Um, it's, a, it's a mode of transportation that people really like. They find it convenient, I guess affordable in some cases. But we are uh, seeing real big boost in um, the car sharing model here. Um, and we are making uh, more routes available for, for uh, active transportation, whether that's just really great pedestrian routes, uh, cycling, of course. And we're starting to see these, you know, scooters are really coming on strong as well. And with electric bikes, um, there's very little excuse to, to not be able to get on a, on a two-wheeled uh, transportation because it gets you where you need to go and, and you don't have to break too much of a sweat sometimes. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure and uh, have a, a great uh, summer, Jess. Last month, the province announced it's investing $10 million to provide 8,000 free air conditioners to elderly, vulnerable, and low-income residents here in BC. In fact, the Minister of Health was on this program talking about um, the free air conditioners. In many ways, BC uh, it was uh, further behind uh, other jurisdictions, Washington State, Oregon, who were providing uh, air conditioners to uh, low-income residents a lot faster than we were. Now, the program here in BC is administered through BC Hydro, but many residents, low-income residents, say um, it's not as easy as the government made it sound. They say that they're vulnerable uh, from accessing the program uh, because the, of the involvement of landlords. Uh, they worry because, say, tenants need a landlord's consent to obtain an air conditioner, and that's putting up an unnecessary barrier. Uh, Indrajit Singh Guman is a renter in Surrey. He spoke to Global News recently about some of these challenges. Take a listen to his comments. It was hot and uh, I couldn't sleep in the night time and uh, even my family, uh, it was like a restless night. Uh, I just moved here uh, last year, so this is like a first, first time experience here in this place. Uh, yeah, so it is, uh, it, it is uh, uh, uncomfortable here because of sunny, uh, higher temperature. Mr. Gooman uh, lives in a basement suite uh, in Surrey, as I was saying, uh, and so he is having, uh, he had difficulty, of course, uh, accessing uh, the air conditioner. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, this program is Murray Martin. He's the Burnaby co-chair for BC ACORN. ACORN stands for Association of Community Organizations for Reform Now. Uh, Mr. Martin, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Uh, first and foremost, uh, this uh, program, the way it is administered, do you think it should have been should be administered through BC Hydro? Uh, I, I'm not going to get into to how it's uh, being implemented. I, I just want to go back to kind of the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like we we have like almost two million renters in the province, and this is eight thousand air conditioners. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, you know, like this is kind of a drop in the bucket um, of the 619 people who died. Ninety percent were over 60, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm sure um, there wasn't any of them who had air conditioning. You know, otherwise their cause of death wouldn't be overheating. So we're looking at lower income people. Acorn membership uh, is low and moderate income people. We have lots of uh, people you know, over 60 who are in this category who died mm-hmm. um, and they don't have access to the internet. And if they do, you know, it's, it's a difficult, they need help um, navigating the internet, things like that. So it just, you know, that's, that's just a barrier first, first mm-hmm. of all. And, 
And like our member in Surrey was, was saying, um, you know, you have to have a BC Hydro account. So like lot, lots of renters live in buildings where the hydro is included. So, um, you know, that, that there's, you know, so that's a problem right there. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think you, that uh, that uh, tenants sh- should or shouldn't have to require the approval of a landlord? To yeah, I, th- I think that's ridiculous. It's like, you know, there's, you know, in the, in the RTA, the or sorry, the, R, the Residential Tenancy Act, uh, there's it's mandated that the landlords have to keep the heat, you know, at a minimum of 21 degrees. Like it, that's that's a mandated law. There's no reason, especially in today's climate, uh, with with events like the heat dome becoming more and more frequent. Uh, it's time that we started to look for that. You know, at the other end for the the cooling end of it, and um, every you know everything I've heard from landlords from you know I, I spent twenty years an electronic technologist, mm-hmm. and these these arguments that uh, this is going to uh, pull too much amperage, things like this, it's, it's just you know it uses half the amperage of a hair dryer. Not like I just check my I have a portable air conditioner in my bedroom. Mm-hmm draws nine uh nine amps and an air conditioner is or sorry uh, like a hair dryer is like 16 to 25 generally so you mm-hmm. know like they're not banning hair dryers so you know and if a building can't support an air conditioning unit they probably can't support the baseboard heating in the winter which means it's it's a landlord issue that they haven't addressed because they're not up to to, to spec but it, it, you know, and the building probably needs to be retrofitted if that's really the case. But in, you know, I, I'm suspecting that 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 is not the case at all. It's more, you know, I've got a case in Burnaby here where a lady phoned me up. Mm-hmm. She in since 2019 and during COVID, the landlord tried to evict her four times. She's like an elderly, senior, vulnerable woman of color, and um, they tried to evict her four times. She had the wherewithal to be able to fight at the RTB, which is like, you know, not usual. Uh, lots of tenants just moved because of that, but she couldn't because she's on low income. So, so this is a corporate landlord in a in a building, uh, apartment rental apartment building built in the '60s, and he's been trying to evict her four times. She's won every case because they were groundless evictions. And um, you know, she goes, she sends me a message saying, like, you know, I was really happy about this, and and I qualified, and then I look, and I have to get my landlord approval, and my landlord absolutely hates me, and. You know, my rent is, this, I think it's the second lowest in the building. So because we don't have the full rent control, the vacancy control, like we talked about last time, mm-hmm. uh, that is the motivation and why he's targeting her for eviction, because he can triple the rent. Right? In your mind, though, the issue of cooling itself, I mean, this has to be dealt with, if it is going to be dealt with, at a province-wide level, um, uh, rather than just talking about 8,000 air conditioners. I mean, I mean, we've had a, um, Nadine Nakagawan, a counselor in uh, yeah. New Westminster, uh, who wants to bring something forward eventually at a province-wide level or at the UBCM level and say, look, you have to be responsible for a cooling system as a landlord just as you are responsible for a heating system. And that's where, that's where you think this needs to go rather than here's 8,000 air conditioners. Uh, hopefully your, your landlord approves that you can, you can plug it in and use it in, in the suite. Yeah, and you look at and the, the earthquake retrofits we've been doing the last I don't know twenty thirty years. You know that that is like much more onerous and much more expensive. We managed to do that, um, you know, 
and this is, you know, throwing air conditioners in units uh, that, you know, an air conditioner is like $500, $600, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the government can buy them in bulk for cheaper. So, you know, first of all, ma- making all these, you know, there's so many problems with this. It's like, two, like you mentioned some of it in the start. It took them two years to come to this decision. And now there's, it's going to be rolled out over three years. So that'll be five years after the heat dome. So the real question is how many people is, is the government going to allow to die because of inaction on this? Because Mr. they're not serious about it. Mr. Martin, we've run out of time. Thank you so much uh, for uh, joining us today. Yep, no problem. Thanks. So, well, BC's uh, port workers voted almost 75% in favour of accepting a contract offer uh, over the weekend. It ended weeks of turbulent job action that stopped billions of dollars worth of goods from being shipped. The approval of the contract, which covers about 7,400 workers, comes after the union rejected a mediated settlement twice, once through the group's leadership caucus, another by the full membership. The Vancouver Board of Trade uh, did say that its estimated $10 billion worth of trade was disrupted during the strike. It was an interesting job action, but is it the last one, the last major one in our province? Joining me now to talk a little bit about um, the labour situation in our province and the port strike itself is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Good afternoon, Keith. Hey, Jazz. So walk me through this. Uh, I think uh, we were talking on Friday on the show about this and a few other issues, and I think Friday evening we had gotten word that... uh, uh, it looks like it was going to be approved. Uh, do you see this as a bringing some sort of peace, at least to the ports for, for, the, for the next four years then? Oh, yeah. No, the ports are done. Um, there's not going to be any more job action. Once you sign a collective agreement, you're bound by it, both sides. So four years of peace on the port, but increasingly it's looking like that is not going to be the case in many other jurisdictions. There's been a number of reports. I've got to call them out, to, out today on pointing out that the number of work stoppages in Canada and North America has increased significantly for the first time in decades. We haven't seen this type of job action or strike activity in literally 30 years or so. Um, if, if the trends continue for the current year, just in BC, just in Canada mm-hmm. alone, there's going to be almost a 50% increase in strikes, uh, the, the length of strikes, and also the person days lost due to work stoppages. Um, um, down in the United States, for example, uh, what's getting all the attention down there, of course, is the Hollywood strike, but mm-hmm. which is, again, almost unprecedented. But there are 323,000 people have gone on strike already in the States, and we're, we're just halfway through the year. 11,000 L.A. city workers are about to go on strike for 24 hours. That's sanitation workers. And, you know, if you're flying into L.A. airport, I'd be worried because there's, no, there's not going to be any shuttle service for at least a day. Uh, New Jersey nurses are on strike. Minnesota firefighters, again, for the first time in decades. And looming on the horizon is 150,000 auto workers in the United States about to go on strike. Uh, we've got them. The good news in BC is we've basically signed all the major public sector union contracts. So we're not going to see the disruptions in the public sector. But the stage is set, and a number of labor analysts point to this for significant disruptions in the workplaces, particularly in the private sector, but there's going to be some public sector disputes, particularly in the United States, over the next couple of years. Because one issue that's emerged that hasn't been there for decades mm-hmm. is cost of living. You know, for years, everyone was settling for 1%, 2 maybe 3%, because inflation really wasn't that rampant. But when you start hitting, you know, 6 7 8%, and your food bill goes up even higher than that, and then you throw on a rent crisis, not a home ownership crisis, because we're talking rents, and you've had a lot of segments on your program of people who can't, or just paying astronomical rents, and their wage 
um, offers from their employers just simply can't keep pace with what they're experiencing in terms of their cash flow and their bank accounts. And then you throw in the fact you've got a changing workforce. The baby boomers are, are, are retiring on, in force. Traditionally, these, that segment of workers, they get a job early as a young adult, and they hang on to that job for their entire career. And that's what they stick with. Now we're seeing younger generations, the millennials, the Gen Z, Generation Z, much more mobile, less, I wouldn't use the word loyal, but less sort of dependent on a lifetime job for 40 years. They're moving from job to job to job. And that makes job action that much easier to sell to the workforce like that. Well, let's touch on some of those issues. You've talked about the present challenges of, of affordability, and I don't think anybody doubts that. I think there was another report today talking about um, rising rent for the rent in the for the Metro Vancouver area. Um, how much of this is driven by sort of this? what we've been hearing the last 20 or 30 years and the workforces do more with less. Some have talked about work-life balance, the workload, my life will not be defined by my job. And then, of course, there is the broader existential challenge, not only to port workers, but to uh, those in the creative industries like Hollywood is technology. Um, is it all of those? Or what do you think at its core beyond what's happening now? What do you think is driving the broader sort of desire for change in, as we head into the future here? I do think it is cost of living. Um, back when your your cost of living is not noticeable on a month-to-month or day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. because things only go up one or two percent, and it's, one or two percent is easily much more easily to easier to absorb into your daily budget or your monthly budget or just your spending habits. But when you start seeing things on average go up six or seven percent, on average means there's some things are going up ten, twelve, fifteen percent. I noticed just my grocery bill, the price of beef, for example, um, of meat has gone up significantly in the last few years. Um, that wasn't a factor before. And because wage increases have really been 2 or 3% a year, mm-hmm. uh, a huge chunk of the population has fallen behind. Uh, on and, and when you compound it year after year after year, say the last two or three years, there's probably a 10% reduction in your take-home pay. And then you throw in, again, the steady rise in rents, which is, again, astronomical for so many people, quite apart from home ownership, the ongoing headaches when it comes to rising energy costs, filling up at the pump. All these things take an impact. And I think a lot of unionized workers and private sector workers or non-unionized have sort of reached a breaking point where maybe, you know, what, what we've got nothing to lose uh, than to throw up a picket line, maybe lose pay for a few weeks, mm-hmm. but in an effort to make some more money down the line. I've come from a labor background, I've always said strikes should be the last resort because you lose money in a strike. But in this case, I think increasingly you're seeing workers both north of the border and south of the border taking a stand that they haven't taken before. We've got a big strike in grocery stores in, in Ontario, which is you know almost 4,000 workers for Metro Inc., which I think 27 stores. It's a major grocery st- uh, um, chain there. Uh, it was unheard of five years ago for them to even contemplate job action, but now they're basically on, on strike in a way that uh, was not envisioned five years ago. Keith, but I mean, I, I understand from the public sector side, right? And they're always organized. The unions are organized. They have their messaging. Uh, and... Some, to a certain degree, the private sector unions, the port union, uh, longshoreman union, uh, you know, they've always been strong. They've been vocal. I think of uh, the steel workers, formerly the IWA. But do you think there's, they're, they're similar in the sense that I always think that you know, public sector unions are better organized. They're much more vocal. Uh, they understand how to message what they want to say. 
private sector generally hasn't been on strike. You don't see no. big, big, high-profile private sector strikes anymore. We haven't seen that for a very long time. Um, is this still, though, at the end of the day, a public sector union fight rather than the private sector? No, what I think is happening is we're starting to see a shift into the private sector. So the port unions, that's not a public sector strike. Mm-hmm. Those are, those are long term unions, not a public sector union. Uh, the grocery workers on strike in, uh, in Ontario is private sector. Uh, the auto workers in the United States looming to uh, go on strike are private sector. The 323,000 people on strike in the States, I haven't got the percentages, many of those are private sector. Those are not uh, public sector or, um, employees. So I think the shift you're seeing, it's not huge and it's going to be gradual, but it is noticeable, is that the shift into more private sector um, quasi-private sector strikes. You take the two transit disputes, for example, not really classic public sector, the Sea to Sky and the Fraser Valley transit disputes went on for months. Mm -hmm. You've got uh, the workers at the Richmond hotels, 200 workers have been out there for a couple months now. And now I haven't got the update, but uh, the employees of three major Vancouver hotels have also uh, taken strike votes and passed them. So we are seeing, I think, a a shift, the likes of which we haven't seen since the 1980s, I think, Mm -hmm. into the private sector now sort of flexing their muscle at, at the bargaining table or on the picket line. And it's going to be interesting to see in the in the year ahead just how much strike activity takes place, not just in the public sector, but in the private sector now. We are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. We're talking about the new port agreement uh, that uh, was uh, ratified over the weekend. 7,400 workers will remain on the job, uh, but do you may recall that the union rejected immediate settlement twice once through the group's leadership caucus, another by the full membership. But a uh, deal is a deal. It is done, which is great. Uh, and Keith and I were just talking about um, the port situation. More importantly, the broader uh, conversation around workers and um, the frustration uh, that they feel they're falling behind, uh, and not just in the public sector, private sector as well. Give us a call on the open line, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Uh, let's go to John and Langley. Hi, John. Yes, uh, howdy, gentlemen. Uh, One thing that really annoys me is the fact that we have three levels of government, and they're all making, uh, uh, you know, tax increases at at various levels. They're all making laws and rules, and with no consideration of what the ramifications are going to be to me, the taxpayer. Now, Now, I'm I'm out of the workforce at this stage of my life. Excuse me, but I was I was a union person. And when I see uh, uh, the head of uh, BC Telus uh, uh, making in excess of $17 million, uh, you know, these things just, they don't wash. What I think we're heading for in this country, we are getting so frustrated at all levels that uh, of costs, groceries, etc., taxes, property taxes, you name it, is that I think we're headed for a general strike and most definitely for a recession. John, thank you for your call. Uh, well, I'm not going to predict a recession, although others have said that already. I'll leave that to the economists. But but he, John does raise a very good point, uh, Keith, in the sense that beyond um, you know whatever concerns people have at work, there is a frustration at, at taxes like a carbon tax. Uh, you know uh, the taxes that we may pay at a municipal level and going up by 10 percent in some cases. Here in Vancouver, uh, that was the case. There is that underlying frustration as well. The government needs to do a better job in just being very careful in regards to how much they tax uh, and keeping their own costs in check as well. 
Well, it's interesting. You know, the federal and provincial governments, other than the carbon tax, which is, you know, um, a tax on its own, it's different than, I think, any other tax. Mm -hmm. There was a poll out recently, I think, where I think a slight majority of Canadians now don't want the tax to go up. But uh, provincial and and, uh, federal governments have largely stayed away from tax increases, Mm -hmm. um, by and large. Municipal governments, though, under, for whatever reason, under big pressure, are starting to increase property taxes significantly. And that, of course, trickles on through other landlords and, and rents and this type of thing. Uh, business taxes on, on commercial businesses within municipal boundaries. Those are the tax increases I think our people are most focused on. We haven't seen income tax increases for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there might be some tinkering with high-income earners, but no government's really touched income tax for a long time. Sales tax doesn't change. And those are the taxes you pay more than any other tax. The Your fuel taxes don't really change other than the carbon tax. Uh, so taxes, I think, are not the issue that it was some time ago, except that increasingly at the municipal level, the smaller governments are in a tighter financial bind. They're not allowed to carry debt. Other governments can, and that's why there's more pressure on the municipals to balance the books, and that's why you're seeing tax increases there, and that's where you're going to see some pushback. As to his suggestion of a general strike, I don't see that. He did raise the CEO compensation, though, and I think this is going to get some attention going forward. When CEOs are making so much more money and their companies are profitable, and then they turn around and either don't give um, adequate compensation to their employees or lay off their employees, as we saw with TELUS, which eliminating 6,000 jobs because it only earned a profit of $200 million in the first two, uh, for, uh, the first quarter, first three months. Only a profit of $200 million, only paying the CEO $17 million, so we have to eliminate 6,000 jobs. That type of stuff is going to start percolating, I think, in the community, in not just that company, other companies as well. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that really drove the port strike. The companies at the port made a lot of money in the pandemic, and the employees wanted a share of that. And that's what kept that strike, I think, initiated the strike at the beginning, mm-hmm. along with fear of jobs through automation and, and, and contracting out. But that was, I think, what set the stage for a 13-day walkout. Yeah, it's very interesting, and I think it's going to be a very interesting year uh, because you're absolutely right. The issue of affordability is front and center. It is the number one issue in, on calls on this show, and certainly you see it in polling as well. Keith, thank you. Anytime, Jess. Barbie? is a billion-dollar hit. Uh, the comedy starring Margot Robbie and Canadian Ryan Gosling topped more than $1 billion in estimated global box office re- receipts as of this weekend. Barbie uh, has hit that coveted milestone, and get this, just 17 days of release. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this phenomenon is uh, Rick Forchuk, TV Week magazine columnist and CKNW contributor. Rick, Welcome. Hello, Jazz. Well, were you expecting this at all, a billion dollars in 17 days? Uh, No, and yes. I wasn't (laughs) expecting it before the movie opened, but having been there on opening day and seeing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mostly youngish women and girls uh, dressed in hot Barbie pink, and they were all there again the next day, I thought, wow, something's happening here. And the following weekend, it was just as crowded in theaters as it had been previously. So uh, that's when I thought, uh, yep, a billion dollars isn't uh, impossible, and maybe in a month. I didn't think it would be quite this soon. Uh, it did uh, a little over half uh, half of that domestically mm-hmm. Canada and the U.S., and the rest overseas. But uh, it's a huge number, and it, of course, has 
people who are theater owners and distributors saying the movies are back. The movies are really, really back. Now, this is a big, big ticket. And um, uh, Super Mario Brothers did a billion as well this year. Uh, last year, Top Gun Maverick, the sequel, uh, did uh, very, very well. It did a billion, as did Avatar The Way of Water. So it's not unprecedented, but it's a great statement for the movie business to say we are indeed back. People are shelling out at the box office. They're showing up and they're here to stay. That's uh, good news for them, Jazz. Uh, what is the pull of this movie in your mind? You're mentioning a lot of uh, young girls there, uh, but it hit a billion dollars. It can't be just one particular demographic. What is the specific pull in your mind that is driving this interest? Yeah, well, it's pretty smart, actually, uh, because uh, Barbie has been around for a long time. So the target audience for this is not just the youngish girls who are playing with Barbies, but it's their parents who had Barbies when they were young. And it's an opportunity for those parents, uh, particularly the moms, to be able to look back in time and say, this is what happened when I got my first Barbie. And look at this. Here I am in my 40s or my 50s, and uh, it's still there. There's still uh, this whole milieu of stuff that just used to belong to me. So I think it's a marketing genius uh, idea to have been able to take something that appeals very, very well to those uh, younger people and also appear, appears so well to their parents. Hmm. I, I think that's the key, Jazz. Um, you read, mentioned this earlier about other movies hitting a billion over the last uh, couple of years. Um, you mentioned Top Gun, uh, Avatar. Um, does this in any way... Uh, save the box office or save Hollywood? Or do you think they're just the structural challenges viewing uh, patterns are so different now the movie business will never be the same movie business anymore? Well, I think that's true. I think the movie business won't be the same. However, uh, when we have Barbie, and we can't, can't uh, ignore Oppenheimer either. Mm-hmm. Oppenheimer did three quarters of a billion dollars in the same time frame as Barbie. So that's not just one phenomenon. That's, uh, that's an, a, a worldwide sort of thing that says, yes, these movies are worth seeing. They're worth going to. They're worth paying out money for. And we're not going to wait for streaming. We're going to see them right there. So I think that... Um, in many respects, uh, yes, the old Hollywood, the old uh, distribution racket or business is kind of gone, but um, we still want to go to movies in theaters, clearly. Uh, if we didn't, um, these movies wouldn't be making this kind of money. So, you know, I'd be making way too much money personally uh, if I really knew the answer to this, to, to be sitting here talking to you. Mm-hmm. I'd be spending my billions on my yacht. But uh, I, I think that um, we have a really great opportunity here for the distributors of films, not just in the Hollywood world, but worldwide to be able to say, yeah, people are still out there and they're willing to pay money for the right kind of product. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that's uh, produced properly and one that's marketed properly, Jazz. Yeah, and, and look, I haven't seen the movie yet. Uh, I've heard great things, good reviews and good word of mouth on this. But ultimately, Barbie is still a movie made after a toy, just as the Transformers are. And just so like so many movies these days, will we ever get back to a a period where we'll have movies that are more focused on everyday issues, um, realistic, uh, based on things that adults have to deal with? You know, the the movies of the 70s and 80s in many cases, more character driven, uh, not that some of these movies aren't, but not built around, you know, uh, a toy conglomerate. 
No, you're right. And uh, Oppenheimer is a good example because it is, uh, unless you want to say that nuclear weapons are toys, (laughs) and maybe for some nations they are, but um, that is a very human drama. It is very character-driven, and it's very relevant today because what Oppenheimer and his team did in the New Mexico desert in the 1940s has changed the world as we know it, and it continues to be changed because of the proliferation of nuclear weapons and uh, nuclear bombs. So, yes, there's still room for movies that speak to the... The, the, the thing that is today and the thing that will be. And I think that, um, yeah, yeah um, named after a toy and Transformers, you make a good point. But there is still lots of room, clearly. Uh, because, again, when I went to see Barbie mm-hmm. and when I went to see Oppenheimer, I looked around in the theaters. I was amazed at Oppenheimer how many younger people were in the audience. I was really amazed. Uh, at least half the audience appeared to be 30 or under. And uh, then there was the usual uh, uh, white tops like the rest of us. But uh, um, I think that speaks again uh, to the clarity that the filmmakers brought to this and the ability to market it in such a fashion Mm -hmm. that people would say, yeah, that's relevant. I want to know more about this. We are speaking to Rick Forchuk, TV Week magazine columnist and CKNW contributor. We were talking about the phenomenon that is the Barbie movie hitting a billion dollars at the box office as of yesterday. They did it in just 17 days after release. Now, Rick, the other thing I want to talk to you about uh, was just movie theater etiquette. You know, going to the movies is still you know pretty special for me. You've got a massive theater, you've got great surround sound, and it just means enjoy the movie and be present. But more and more, um, you know, we're seeing bad behavior, especially folks uh, who have cell phones. It got to the point, uh, I was reading um, this weekend, uh, there was a U.S. theater chain, Alamo Drafthouse. They issued a tweet, uh, and then they said, uh, quote, don't take pictures during the movie with the flash on. Don't even touch your phone during the movie. Just don't. PSA over. So, I mean, obviously they were responding to many complaints uh, because of movie theater etiquette. Are you... Do you see some of that when you're out uh, out and about watching movies? Yes, I see a huge amount of it. And um, uh, this morning when I clicked on my email, there was one from Bill Ryder. Now, Bill was a 1960s and 70s radio legend in the Vancouver area, mm-hmm. also part of Dr. Bandolo's Pandemonium Medicine Show. And Bill sent me uh, an item from the Toronto Globe and Mail mm. on exactly this topic. And he says, is this your experience? And I thought, man, did you ever strike a nerve? Yes, every time I go to the theater, uh, and with more people in theaters now, it's worse, uh, we sit invariably uh, behind somebody that decides they're going to uh, read their email, or they're going to text their friends, or they're going to do real-time promotion and real-time examination of this picture that we're seeing. And when you have 1, 2, 3, 10, 20, 30 people all doing that, it just becomes crazy. And yes, a lot of them, for some reason, want to take flash photographs of whoever's on screen, and that is very, very irritating. So uh, I have a lot more vitriol to expel on this one, uh, but for starters, I'll tell you, Jazz, it is a big, big problem. And to some extent, I think theaters are becoming victims of their own success right now, Jazz. Yeah. And is it generational? I mean, is it mostly younger? And I'm, I, could, I could be broadly generalizing here. Is it generational, though? It's mostly younger generation, use of cell phones, want to put stuff up on social media? 
Yeah, the cell phones are generational. They're the younger people. But uh, the other side of it is older people who are used, I think, used to watching movies at home over COVID and used to feeling like they're in their family room or living room Mm -hmm. and talking to one another about what they're seeing in very, very loud voices because a lot of folks at that age don't hear as well as they once did are talking and giving a running commentary as to what's going on. So over in one corner, we've got these voices going on when he says, Harold, what's he doing now? I don't know, Mavis. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a look and see what he's doing. Uh, while at the same time, we've got people texting and people taking pictures and people just generally making nuisances of themselves. And, and let me give you an example of um, how serious this can be. Um, uh, not very long ago, uh, I got firsthand, I was there actually, and saw this happen. Uh, there was a, a guy, maybe middle 30s, uh, mm-hmm. with us. I assume his son, maybe 12 years old, and uh, he had lit up the whole area with his big cell phone. It was one of the big phones. And an older lady, somebody in her late 60s, early 70s, went over and said, excuse me, sir, very polite, excuse me, sir, that's very distracting. Could you shut that off? Well, he swore at her using some choice expletives. And worse, at the end of the movie, Mm -hmm. uh, this couple left the theater. This guy was waiting for them and actually prevented them from getting out of the parking lot by blocking the the way with his truck. And then followed them as they tried to go home and harassed them all the way. So if you have a problem, go to see one of the staff members and say, look, uh, somebody's doing this. Uh, Don't try and take it on yourself because you never know uh, what you're up against in a dark movie theater jazz. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think it is going to be up to movie theaters as well to to enforce some of those rules. It's unfortunate that you have to do that, but you get, it, it, there has to be a strong line there because that's the only reason, the only way people actually learn. And it's unfortunate because you are paying a lot to go watch these movies between uh, the movie itself and, and, and uh, food and hope, taking kids along and all that sort of thing. You do want it to be a wonderful experience and not uh, this kind of stuff get in the way and it's rather unfortunate that it's happening more and more. But yes, manners are always in fashion and should remain that way that's for sure rick thank you thank you jazz good talking with you well this summer the township of langley uh, municipal council endorsed the idea of reviving the fraser valley interurban rail line now the line was originally built and operated uh, between 1910 and 1950 and if you can believe at one time extended from chilliwack all the way to Vancouver. Now, the goal is to revive the line today, connecting Chilliwack to the Expo SkyTrain line in Surrey. The line would be 99 kilometres long. Now, the Langley Township Resolution will be presented uh, to the Union of BC Municipalities this September uh, during their yearly um, AGM. Now, joining me now to discuss the issue is Rick Green, President of the South Fraser Community Rail Society and the former Mayor of Langley Township. Mr. Green, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. Uh, how important was this endorsement from the township of Langley? Well, really uh, significant, Jazz. And this um, this campaign goes back to when I was the mayor in 2008. I was elected in 2008, and we renewed the master agreement, which is a, it's a long, involved story. But the bottom line was we had to uh, get the support of all municipalities south of the Fraser. Uh, they all passed resolutions in support of the renewal, which went to Bob Elton, of the CEO of BC Hydro at the time. And uh, we got that approved and renewed as of July of 2009, which happened to be six weeks before we would have lost this opportunity forever. Hmm. Uh 
moving forward now, what happens? Well, we've been working um, quite closely, actually, with the um, after the renewal in 2009. It basically went into hibernation a little bit because, yeah, we had the renewal, but the problem was you had uh, no um, sufficient uh, energy source to move passenger rail up and down the south of the Fraser, especially into an airshed, the Fraser Valley airshed, which is known as a polluted airshed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would have been diesel. So uh, fast forward to 2017, the advent of the Alstom Caradia Island hydrogen train in Germany, which is uh, Canadian technology, uh, manufactured in Mississauga, Ontario. Uh, so that was up on, a t- on test runs for about a year and a half, I think two years. It got all the licensing required, and it's been in operation ever since, uh, and it's expanded su- uh, significantly across Europe and now into the U.K., so moving forward here in regards to the, the for for the region itself uh, connecting um this uh, rail with SkyTrain what happens next Well what we're saying I mean this is the most uh this is a priceless opportunity for the provincial government SkyTrain is great for uh high density areas um that's a, that's a given and it's pretty well um I guess lived its usefulness uh now with the expansion into Langley City uh, it's not going to go beyond Langley City. It's just too expensive. I mean, the the extension to Langley City that they're working on now is, and we can argue uh, semantics here, but it's roughly $300 million a kilometer. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that if to get adequate uh, trans- transit south of the Fraser, uh, there's no way you could afford those uh, that kind of a price tag. So what we're saying, this this corridor... I mean, this gave us uh, this gave us rail transit from uh, uh, back in 1910, if you can believe it. Um, so, it, and it was decommissioned in 1950. The interesting thing is, the provincial government uh, in 1988, when they sold off, they were uh, they were asked to sell off the whole thing, the corridor, and the whole thing. The provincial government said no. They wanted to protect the corridor for private uh, to be uh, to be owned by the public. Mm-hmm. And that they insisted that passenger rights be maintained on that corridor as part of any lease agreement. So that is that's where we stand right now. If you take a look at the 99-kilometer corridor, it hits, um, and people say, "Well, it doesn't go through population centers." Well, that's the absolute. That's absolutely false. Highway One does not go through the population center south of the Fraser. The interurban corridor does. It protects agricultural land. We've got a massive amount of agricultural land up the valley, which would not allow for the expropriation or putting through any kind of commuter rail. We're talking about community rail uh, here. Mm-hmm. It's connecting 16 communities, 16 population centers, 14 post-secondary institutions, 14 First Nations communities, uh, Abbotsford International Airport, and most of these areas just do not have any kind of um, any kind of transit, uh, either not significant, not not sufficient enough, or it doesn't exist at all. Uh, this is just a natural source of, and also clean energy, uh, to be able to go into the, uh, the Fraser Valley airshed, be non-polluting, reduce traffic off of Highway One. You know, Highway One is, you know, they just announced the other day the the future expansion. And we totally agree. Highway One has to expand for for the economy, for truck traffic, for passenger traffic, and everything else. 
but there is no inter-regional transit. Right now, you'll hear uh, a lot talked about, well, we need you know regional transit. We're looking after regional transit. Uh, this is normally the, the, what comes out of TransLink. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. TransLink are responsible for Metro Vancouver. That's it. They don't care about anything else. And I best, the best example of that, in my view, is um, top, talking about uh, funding a gondola to SFU. Well, if that is the highest priority for transit in the Lower Mainland, um, I, I don't know. Uh, our world is falling apart because it just is ridiculous, that kind of a statement. So in, but in, it shows you where their priorities are. Mm-hmm. So they in, are only in, interested in Metro Vancouver. So in, in this case, the, 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 the train itself along this 99-kilometer corridor would go from Chilliwack all the way to the present-day SkyTrain at, at Scott Road. Correct, yeah. And there would be stops along the way. That's right. There's so, about, about 14 stops is what we're proposing. And what would, uh, are there any areas that's, you were mentioning some of them, so there's, there's potentially universities and colleges along the way, different routes uh, yep. in, in, in through all that. So much like the West Coast Express, although it goes downtown, it would be a train service that would connect it, and it's much cheaper than SkyTrain at the end of the day. Absolutely. It's like pennies on the dollar compared to SkyTrain. It's also much, much more environmentally friendly. Uh, it's quiet. Um, uh, there is just so many uh, positives to it. Um, it's a real priceless opportunity. So this is a hydrogen-powered passenger rail. Correct. So a- any sense of what the cost for something like would be, what, what the cost would be for something like that for that? For it was that? estimated. Um, we've had engineering studies done. It was estimated that the reactivation cost of the whole interurban. Uh, including rolling stocks and, and, and road gates and what have you, uh, is somewhere in the $1.6, $1.7 billion range. That's for 99 kilometers. Now compare that to uh, Langley SkyTrain, 16 kilometers, um, which we can have the debate about the cost in, in our view because we know the land that it is going through um, and we've got lots of ways to prove it. Uh, it's going to cost roughly $5 billion. Uh, in your mind, how much of what you're fighting for uh, comes from your own experience in local government and just dealing with not just local government, oh, but translating yeah, all of that? Like, how much of this is, drives you? Oh, it, you know, Jazz, I was, I guess, fortunate or unfortunate because I would never have believed it would have taken me this long to get this thing to, to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was fortunate to be in a position to ask the question, to to raise the issue uh, in camera originally at the Township of Langley and, and finding the master agreement and going through all the legal processes to make sure it said what we thought it said, and then ultimately getting it approved and getting it renewed. Um, I am absolutely committed to seeing this thing happen. It just makes too much sense. I mean, if you take a look at anywhere else in the world, and I, I would imagine you probably have more experience than many um, with your travels of um, and how uh, train travel mm-hmm. is used in other parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, we are just, and, and quite frankly, you don't even have to look um, offshore. I mean, look at what's happening in Calgary. Look what's happening back east on Ontario and Quebec. And um, it just makes too much sense. Uh, the 
Anyway, I could go on and on. I know, I know you could. I mean, I know you're very uh, passionate about the $1.6 billion. So it stops at the, is it right at the Scott, uh, Scott Road SkyTrain station would be? Yeah, it, it basically is across the, ra- what we're proposing, it's across the railway tracks from the SkyTrain station. So you would put in, you could put in an elevated walkway. You could, you know, there's a number of things you could do to connect the two. Um, and when we say, and one thing that I want to point out is that when we're talking about passenger stations, let's, let's just call them that, mm-hmm. we're really talking about passenger platforms like they have in Europe. Uh, we're not talking about the edifice that uh, SkyTrain is building at, at multi-millions of dollars per copy. We're talking about passenger platforms, and that's all that's required in each one of these stops. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and obviously it would be integrated with the TransLink system. That's, that, that's the ultimate hope, just to build it absolutely. all in the ticket price. Yeah, now, this absolutely. Would, this would lose money in the sense of, you know, this capital cost to build it, but the operational side, most transit generally loses money, I would think. I absolutely. Mean, yeah, yeah, just, just like West Coast no Express. Question. Yeah. You know, I mean, well, look at it this way. West Coast Express right now is TransLink um, and the West Coast Express uh, division is, is paying CP Rail $20 million a year just for the lease of the railway tracks. Mm-hmm. Think about that, $20 million a year just for the lease of the railway tracks, and they get five trains in and five trains out a day, only on business days. We're talking about an operation that's going to operate seven days a week, 16 to 17 hours a day, it would have uh, possibly rush hour. Rush hour frequency would be roughly every half hour, uh, and this is only proposed. But we've got a number of things in place, um, and I'd be more than happy to send you, if you're if you're interested, a copy of a community business case that we've developed for the government. Um, all cabinet ministers have received a copy of it, um, and a number of mayors. Um, but it is a, a, a comprehensive. Um, capsulation of all of the information. I mean, we did a Mario Canseco research poll here two years ago because one of the things that, you know, we always knew anecdotally that we had the support of the community. And that's because it goes, this, this campaign goes back two decades if you really look at it. Um, so, you know, I thought, well, you know, that's great. You know, we, we love it. We're, we're passionate about it. We think it's the right thing and we think the public do, but we can't prove that to government. Mm-hmm. So we did a poll uh, from North Delta, out to um, out to Chilliwack, eighty eight percent supported it. So what what is the challenge? Do you think? I mean, is it just because we've in love with the system and the SkyTrain? Look, it does work in urban areas. It's a world class system, but it is expensive. But it does work. And Surrey's going to get continue to grow. Langley's going to continue to grow. Incredible density is is already there and coming even more so in both communities. So I can understand why SkyTrain works. And there may be more SkyTrain along King George. But in regards to moving people in from Chilliwack all the way to a SkyTrain system in, into Surrey. Why has there been this hesitation? Why has it taken this long for these communities? I really think that it, it's just it's just living on living on past um, I guess past history. Nobody's ever really thought about it. It's never really been available. Uh, gee, do we want to make this big of a jump? Um, I, I'll, I'll give you an example to uh, and a comparative look uh, to a way to look at it. Mm-hmm. SkyTrain in Metro Vancouver. Uh, winds and weaves its way all through Surrey and Coquitlam and, and Poco and, and Vancouver. Um, but when they, when they put in every section of SkyTrain, they reconfigured the bus routes. So it's what we call a spine and rib system. So the spine, obviously, is the SkyTrain uh, Sky system. 
and the ribs are the buses which are rerouted and they connect up to in many cases the rail the the transit hubs which is the skytrain stations same thing would apply south of the river all of the 14 to 16 locations that we're talking about would be the transit rail hubs the the bus transit to connect up to that would would service that and so the uh, obviously the interurban would be the spine the bus routes would be the ribs and they recon they connect up. So in many cases, and I've got it all spelled out in our community business case, um, in terms of the connection, the the, the connectivity, uh, the the road connectivity, the the transit rail connectivity. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it just <laughs> it makes too much sense. Yeah, well, it's very interesting, and and uh, look forward to having you on the show again because uh, it's one of those things I think that will grow in regards to support because there's a lot uh, riding on it and, and certainly a region that is going to continue to grow, that's for sure. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, Rick. No problem. Anytime. Well, according to a new study from UBC, treatment with modern antidepressants may help prevent patients with bipolar disorder from relapsing into a depressive episode. An international clinical trial was led by researchers at UBC's Faculty of Medicine, and the findings were published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine. The findings challenge current clinical practice guidelines and could change how bipolar depression is managed globally. Joining me now to discuss the issues, Dr. Lakshmi Yatham. He is a professor and head of the Department of Psychiatry at UBC and the study's lead author. Dr. Yatham, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here, Josh. Can you walk our audience through this study uh, and uh, what it tells us? Yeah, so I think most people are familiar with uh, antidepressant uh, medications, which, uh, as everyone knows, are used widely for uh, treating uh, depression uh, that we commonly call major depressive disorder. Mm -hmm. Uh, But our study looked at uh, the role of antidepressants uh, for another type of depression called bipolar depression. So bipolar disorder uh, used to be previously called manic depressive illness, and so people that have bipolar, have manic episodes, and also depressive episodes. Um, So the question is, you know, do antidepressants uh, help people with bipolar depression, or are they harmful? And there isn't really consensus among experts about uh, whether they're beneficial or harmful, and that's really what we looked at in this particular study. And does this study challenge the the the, the current uh, clinical practices then? Um, well, to to some extent, uh, because as I said, uh, there is no consensus amongst experts. So some experts would say antidepressants are beneficial, life saving for people with bipolar depression, and we should use them. Others will say no, there isn't any evidence, and they're harmful. The, the reality is that there isn't uh, a, a good uh, randomized controlled trial which um, shows evidence one way or another. Um, so most of the expert opinion until uh, this study was based on just opinion. Mm-hmm. So in this particular study, we, we essentially address that question by you know taking people with the bipolar depression, treating them with antidepressants, and once they got better, Half of the patients continued the antidepressants in conjunction with mood stabilizers for about a year, and uh, the other half had their antidepressant 
uh, taper beginning at week six, and by week eight, they're off their antidepressants. So the remaining 44 weeks, they, they, they took the placebo. Mm-hmm. And then we looked at, well, are there differences in relapse rates uh, between, the, between the two groups to answer this question? And of course, there, there are two ways of addressing that, and that is, you know, you look at the data from week zero, or you look at the data from week six, and we had to make a decision which way to go. And uh, we, we decided to go with the week zero, even though in the first six weeks, both groups were getting antidepressants. And so we assumed that, you know, if there is any relapse in those first six weeks, they would be similar in both groups. But our study showed that by random noise, mm-hmm. uh, more patients in the 52-week group had a relapse in the first six weeks. So four patients in the 52 group versus one in the eight-week group. And that, that random noise uh, messed up our, what we call a primary outcome measure. So, so when we compared the data from week zero, we still found that fewer patients in the 52-week group had a relapse, 31%, versus 46% in the eight-week group had a relapse. So still fewer patients in the antidepressant continuation group had a relapse. But the difference was not significant, uh, statistically speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you had a hard nose, sorry, go ahead, Jeff. No, go ahead. I'll let you finish. I was just going to say, if you're a hard-nosed statistician, you will say, well, this is telling you that, you know, there is no benefit. But, of course, as we said, that random noise impacted. Ideally, you know, we should have looked at the data from week six. And when we do look at the data from week six, we actually find a clear benefit uh, for a continuation of antidepressants, uh, both for preventing any mood episode and, in particular, preventing um, depressive relapse. And I think most clinicians that treat bipolar patients will likely look at that data because that's when the treatments differ between the two groups, with one group on antidepressants, the other group on placebo. Mm-hmm. And they're going to say, yeah, you know, whatever I've been doing all these years, you know, in terms of using antidepressants, I was right. So I should be using antidepressants. And that's probably is going to be a clinical takeaway for a lot of uh, clinicians that treat people with bipolar disorder. And, and this trial wasn't conducted just in Canada, was it? No. So we started the study in Canada and, uh, you know, uh, recruiting uh, people for uh, studies is quite challenging because it does require a lot of commitment. So then we uh, expanded the study to Korea and India. And in fact, most of the patients for the study were recruited from India, from Bangalore, uh, which has this national institute, uh, which is uh, well-renowned for excellence in uh, South Asia. So most patients for the study came from there. Mm -hmm. Um, The overall study of uh, bipolar uh, depression, um, how much more, I mean, when I I hear and read the news and you hear about mental health issues and challenges, the work that you're doing is so vitally important, isn't it? Because so much of the the folks that are not treated or not getting the right treatment um, end up uh, on our streets and end up in places that uh, are just incredibly depressing for so many people. Uh, I guess it really just speaks to the incredible work that you and your, your, your colleagues are doing because at the end of the day, we still need to be doing more in regards to treating people who are who are dealing with um, with bipolar depression. Absolutely, I mean bipolar disorder is one of the most complex 
psychiatric illnesses, and it begins at a fairly young age in um, late childhood or adolescence. So it does have a significant impact on people's lives. And, uh, you know, in terms of the, how it manifests, you know, as I said, they, they can present with the manic episodes uh, during which people have very limited insight and end up doing things that they might regret uh, later on, uh, you know, getting into fights, uh, getting arrested, spending lots of money, and then depressive episodes which during which uh, many people uh, make suicidal attempts and uh, as many as 15% of bipolar patients kill themselves. So it's a very serious illness. And uh, with regard to treatment, we do have a number of medicines that seem to work quite well for treating mania and preventing mania. But depression is a huge challenge. We have very few medicines that work well for treating depression and preventing depression. That's really why we need more research uh, to find medicines that are helpful for treating bipolar depression and preventing depression. Because when someone becomes depressed, you know, finding the right medicine to bring them out is quite challenging. Uh, Dr. Yathan, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, Jess. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980-CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at JazzJoeHallPC. Talk to you next time.